Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with Aaron Kaplan. He is the Goldman Professor of Israel Studies at San Francisco State University. We are here to discuss his new book, Projecting the Nation, History and Ideology on the Israeli Screen, published by Rutgers University Press in 2020. Iran, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Hi, Ari. It's my pleasure, and I look forward to, uh, to talking with you. Thank you. To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? Were there any formative events in your life that inspired you to become an academic? I, I grew up in Israel, and I got my BA from Tel Aviv University. And what drew me to academic life was really my first month of undergraduate studies at Tel Aviv University. I just loved it. And since that moment, I could only imagine myself within academe. And so I stayed. Uh, From there, I went to Brandeis University, where I received my PhD in uh, history. And since then, I've been teaching in various places. Wonderful. What inspired you to write this particular book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Uh, So what inspired me is, first and foremost, my experience in the classroom. So my PhD is in history, and most of what I teach are history courses. But going back now almost 25 years of teaching, I thought that I can use movies and cinema as a wonderful instructional tool in the classroom, that showing movies or showing clips can convey certain historical moments or even developments in ways that really interact with students and really draws them into the material. And I ended up drawing more and more on those sources to the point where I developed a course on teaching Israeli history through film. And this is really where the book originated from. And it's a reflection of years of experience teaching about Israeli history and about Israeli cinema. But the reason that I ended up writing the book and publishing the book is that I felt there was a need, especially in the English speaking and reading world for a more comprehensive look at the history of Israeli cinema There have been a lot published recently about Israeli cinema, but within academic publishing, the tendency is to focus on certain perspectives, certain elements, certain themes within Israeli cinema. And I felt that with the growing interest in Israeli cinema, with more classes offered on Israeli history through film, that there was a place for a more comprehensive historical look at Israeli cinema. And it's relationship to the overall history of modern Israel. And this is really the genesis of this book. Can you comment on the history of Israeli film studies? How, when, and why did this academic field emerge? Yes, so like Israeli cinema itself, it's a fairly new field uh, of study. Uh, And it really started developing in the 1970s. In the 1970s, we see the emergence of journals that deal with Israeli cinema with not necessarily an academic angle, more broad appeal, but nevertheless dealing with Israeli cinema. And we have several academic publications that deal with Israeli cinema. But I think that the groundbreaking work, the one that really set the field and define its parameters was the uh, work by Ella Shochat, an Israeli sociologist at NYU, about Israeli cinema, East and West, where she offered a critical account of the history of Israeli cinema up until the late uh, 1980s through a very uh, specific 
perspective and um, analytical framework. And really since the publication of her book, we see the emergence of more and more scholars who initially really engaged with her work, but then spread and broaden the field. And today there are dozens of academics who study uh, various aspects of Israeli cinema and publish in a variety of places, including journals that are dedicated to Israeli cinema. What aspects, if any, of Israeli film are uniquely Israeli or quote unquote uniquely Israeli? What is Israeli about Israeli film? What is quote unquote Israeli about Israeli film? So I think that in many ways, the answer lies in the very question that you asked. What makes Israeli cinema Israeli is the fact that it is Israeli and that it deals with Israel. And here we have to think about cinema as an art form. It is not painting and it is not writing a book or is not even composing a piece of music. Uh, producing a film is an expensive endeavor. In Israel today, the average budget of a feature film is somewhere between 1.5 and $2 million. It sounds like nothing in comparison to a Hollywood film, but very few artists have a million and a half or $2 million lying around. So it relies on financing. And then we have to ask the question, who finances the film industry in any uh, given area or any given country or any given industry and what's behind it. The model for all film industries is Hollywood. They set the template worldwide. When we think of film industry, we first and foremost think of Hollywood. And in Hollywood, they produce films because it's an industry and ultimately it's a bottom line industry. There are producers, there are private companies and they wanna make money by drawing millions and millions to the theaters. And they develop certain ideas of what a film should look like, be about, and ideally it will fall into a certain genre that will draw certain audiences and will cover the expenses and turn in a profit. In Israel, the story is much different. Uh, the Hebrew-speaking public, those who go to movies, is a very small public. And the appeal beyond the borders of the Hebrew-speaking world of Israeli cinema, while there is genuine interest among people who are interested in foreign cinema or cinema for the sake of cinema, there's not a huge audience there that could even cover the expenses of most uh, productions of Israeli cinema. Therefore, in Israel, like in many other small countries, the film industry is really subsidized by the state, by the country, seen as part of the production of culture and showing the national culture to the world. And so when Israel exports movies to the world, the question arises is what type of movies would the world like to see coming out of Israel? And the answer is that not looking for the next science fiction film from Israel, and they're probably not looking for the next romantic comedy coming out of Israel, what they're looking for ultimately are movies about Israel that are uniquely Israeli. And so when Israeli movies uh, try to get into the um, prestigious festivals around the world in Cannes or in Venice or in Berlin, or if they compete for the uh, international awards, most importantly, the Academy Awards, the expectation is that the movies will be about Israel that they will be tied to the Israeli experience. And therefore the majority of the feature films, not documentary films that are produced in Israel are ultimately they're Israeli because they deal with Israel and they really tell the Israeli story from a variety of perspective. So at the end, they really are Israeli. To what degree should Israeli films be seen as commodities? I think that ultimately any film is a commodity. And I just mentioned the budgets that go into the production of movies. So we can never ignore the, uh, the financing, what is behind the, uh, the film industry. And of course, then movies are shown to the public and it's expected that the public will 
buy tickets and go see them. Even Israeli films, they don't draw the numbers that Hollywood blockbusters draw, but they still draw audience and the audience pays money to watch the films. So the movies enter the marketplace, whether it be domestically or internationally. And by entering the marketplace, they are commodities. And yet again, they reflect their time and the reality in which they are produced and consumed also as uh, commodities. To what degree might the price of admission to a movie theater have been out of reach for specific socioeconomic and cultural groups within Israel at different phases of time? How have the cultural characteristics of audiences for Israeli films changed in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and or 90s, can you comment on the socioeconomic demographics of viewers of Israeli films and theaters? Can you comment on the typical audience or audiences of viewers and spectators of Israeli films and their history? Yeah. Uh, what I can do is I can identify three major periods that relate to the financing of Israeli cinema. Mm -hmm. So Israeli cinema was actually born before Israel was born, even in the mm -hmm. pre-state era, the Zionist movement through the JNF and other organs produced films. And those films were basically variation on propaganda films trying to sell the Zionist idea, whether to draw in new immigrants or to raise funds for the burgeoning Zionist movement. And when the state of Israel was created for the first decade or so, the state continued to directly finance films that were kind of heroic celebrations of the young state. And this model ended in the early 1960s. And for a while, the state decided instead of direct investment in films, it will offer various tax incentives for producers something that we encounter, for example, in the United States regularly uh, nowadays. And this had a profound impact on Israeli cinema because it led to two major developments. On the one hand, it created commercial cinema in Israel because now there were commercial incentives to produce uh, films. So private producers went in and invested in order to turn a profit. And the area that, that, I, that they identified as the most profitable were comedies. And the genre that developed in Israel, and this is truly the only form of Israeli genre film, were Burekas comedies, which were really ethnic comedies that pitted Ashkenazi Jews against Mizrahi Jews, usually kind of a comedic take on the Romeo and Juliet theme whereby two families, the younger members of the families fall in love, the parents don't approve, there are tensions, and at the end there's resolution. And those ethnic comedies, those Barakos comedies were very popular in the 1960s in Israel and into the 1970s. The other type of cinema that developed in Israel was artistic independent cinema that relied on very meager budgets, but within those constraints led to some incredible cinematic innovations and developments and some interesting kind of artistic filmmaking influenced by European modernism of the 60s and 70s. But what we also have to take into account is that there was no television broadcast in Israel until 1968. So cinema was the real place where people went out to watch and be entertained. So going to the movies was hugely popular up until the late 1960s, early 70s. By that time, more and more Israelis had TV sets in their homes. And in those years, uh, movie was very accessible and was a popular uh, form of entertainment. And basically everybody went out to the movies. With the rise of television, just like the rest of the world, overall consumption of cinema decreased in Israel. And by the late 1970s, a new model for financing films emerged, whereby the government would create national funds that would finance 
the film industry. And wow. the emphasis shifted away from those popular comedies into kind of more serious dramas that deal with the various realistic aspects of the Israel experience. And what we see is that the overall numbers decreased of viewership for this type of film. They became much more niche kind of uh, movie going experience. And like the rest of the world, the Hollywood blockbusters have become the main attraction for the Israeli uh, uh, movie viewing audience. Now, the prices in recent years of going to the movies have gone up as they have in the rest of the world. However, in an attempt to aid the local film industry, some of the tickets for Israeli films are actually subsidized. And so there's an attempt to draw bigger audiences and help the film industry. But this is really as part of the overall attempt of the government to support this industry as a whole. In your book, you allude frequently to the theoretical insights of Slavoj Žižek. What stands out about Žižek's insights in particular in regard to film and Israeli film in comparison and contrast with other contemporary film theorists such as Roland Barthes or others. What yeah. does Zizek contribute to one's understanding of Israeli film? Where does Zizek come into your analysis? So I would say that Zizek comes into my analysis in two places. One, what I appreciate and like about uh, Zizek's writing and his lectures is the manner by which he uses examples to illustrate the rather complicated abstract theoretical notions. And he draws on examples many times from popular culture in order to illustrate certain ideas or certain themes. And many of those examples come from cinema. And what I appreciate is the fact that he does not necessarily go to documentary films or films that deals with certain themes that would lend themselves to a historical, sociological, or philosophical analysis, but he goes to popular feature films in order to locate and isolate certain moments or tensions and use them to illustrate greater themes. And this really appealed to me as an educator. And I started our conversation by talking about my experiences in the classroom and the idea of taking even a snippet from a film and using it to show a much, much greater or bigger idea is something that I really appreciate in the writing and in the work of Slavoj Žižek. And I try to implement in my teaching and to a degree in this book. But this is the initial answer. There's a much deeper level to that. And ultimately, what Zizek suggests is that film is a form of fantasy. We create fantasy. And there are so many parallels between film and dream and, and, the, and the reality of dreams. Because like dreams, films are realistic. They, they have actors. They look like reality. But it's not reality. It's a manufactured reality that we construct. And the question then arises, how do we construct this alternative reality, this fantasy? And Zizek, being someone who comes from an interest in um, psychoanalysis, he is interested in the way that the unconscious comes into play here. And what are the forces that drives us, the filmmakers, us, the viewers, to engage with cinema in a certain way. And that we, when we analyze those films, can try and identify and locate certain forces, certain powers that shape the historical moment, the ideology of a time, and really can be seen, can be located through the experience, through watching uh, movies and, and understanding certain um, tensions and moments that shape the, our, our, our viewing experience in those films. So this is what drew me to Zizek. Zizek specifically comes up in the book when he refers to, quote unquote, the happy 90s. What is the relevance of this context 
to the history of Israeli film in the 1990s. To what degree can, quote unquote, the happy 90s, as understood by Zizek, apply to the Oslo years between 1993 and 2001? And how is this reflected in Israeli films from those years? Sure. So when Zizek talks about the uh, happy 90s, he really talks about the moment that Fukuyama first identified as the end of history moment, right? The collapse of the, or the beginning of the collapse of the Soviet bloc, the sense that the uh, Cold War that defined the second half of the 20th century came to an end, that the major ideologies that that challenged the liberal Western order failed, and we're entering a period that will be defined by the lack of ideological tensions and the type of violence that they generate, and that we will be living in a type of Pax Americana dominated by the market and the promises that it provides, and we all will dwell happily in one global uh, village without major tensions. And for Zizek, conveniently, the happy 90s ended with 9-11, with the collapse of the towers, when the world was reminded, even though the 1990s had many other instances where the world could have been reminded, that we're still living in a world dominated by various ideological forces, by the potential for violence, war, and conflict. We can now apply the same historical matrix to Israel. So of course, Israel was also deeply impacted by the collapse of the uh, Soviet bloc. It had geopolitical implications in the Middle East because the Cold War really shaped the geopolitical um, situation in the Middle East going back to the uh, late 1940s and 1950s, but also because it opened the gates to mass uh, immigration from the former Soviet Union into Israel. And over the 1990s, close to a million new immigrants would come and it would provide a major uh, boost to Israeli society and Israeli economy. And with that, as you mentioned, the Oslo process, Israel entered a peace process with the Palestinians and not only with the Palestinians, but the with the Arab world uh, more broadly that held the promise of ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. And there was a sense that Israel could transition from a state that was defined by war, by conflict, into a normal state. They would be fully integrated into the region and with it into the broader global (coughs) order. And with it, there was this Fukuyama sense, even in Israel, that Israel can enter a post-ideological or post-political age whereby the major issues, the major questions that define the Israeli experience resolve themselves and Israelis can now live Fukuyama envisioned kind of a boring, a boring life for people living in liberal democracies where history could only be experienced in museums but not in real life that there was a sense that israelis may enter this phase of their national existence and in israeli cinema you can see how many of the dominant films in the 1990s really reflected this sense there was a move away from the typical big questions that dominated Israeli cinema, war, the military, the the price of collectivism, the deep ethnic uh, social tensions. And they were, in a way, shoved to the side for more kind of comedic takes on the Israeli experience without any big political message or argument behind those films. So the films of Savi Gavizon, like Shuru and Lovesick or Afula Express or St. Clara, I'm mentioning a few of the films 
that won the Ophir Prize, that's the Israeli Academy Awards, and then the films that go on to represent Israel in the American Academy Awards. These are all films that take kind of a humoristic, even detached look at Israeli life. And to me, they're indicative of those happy 90s, the sense of a kind of a post-political, post-ideological Israel. But just as the towers collapsed in New York, the second intifada that broke out in 2000 really burst this notion of an end of history or end of conflict in Israel asunder. And Israel and Israelis were re-engaged fiercely with history by the early 2000s. And I think that, again, Israeli cinema uh, reflects uh, those changes and turn back to the big issues or the big questions. How do Israeli films contest the meaning of heroism? So initially they celebrated heroism. If you look at the films or pseudo documentary films that were produced um, in Israel before 1948, at the center, we always see the pioneer. And the pioneer, while they don't say much, most of those films were silent, they're clearly heroic figures. They represent the new Jew or the new Hebrew, which was the symbol of the Zionist movement. This masculine, strong, healthy person who's engaged in working the land and, all, and later on with fighting. And they became those Zionist heroes and they were celebrated on screen. And after 1948, some of the heroic Israeli films like L24 or He Walked the Fields were again a celebration of those archetypical Zionist heroes or characters. But what we see is that after 1967, which is interesting because 1967 was in many ways Israel's greatest military victory within six days, destroyed its neighboring armies and tripled the size of the territory under Israeli control. But when it came to Israeli cinema, and one can see it in other aspects of Israeli culture, the cinema becomes much more introspective when examining war and the impact of war on Israeli society. And to me, the quintessential movie that shows this turn is the movie Siege. And the movie Siege was filmed in Israel in the winter of 1968-1969. It's a film that takes place in real time. It depicts Israel in those months when it was filmed. And at the center of this film is a war widow, a woman who lost her husband in the 1967 war. And this is not a war that celebrates heroism. It's a movie that focuses on a widow and how she is trying to adjust to life after losing her husband and having to raise a child by her own, and the type of tensions she feels in a country that expects her still to serve a certain role, and her desires as a woman to live an individual liberated life. And this movie shifts the focus away from the battlefield and onto the impact of war on individuals. Not only that, we also witness in the film people who were wounded in the war and the kind of the broken body as opposed to the very healthy uh, body that we see in early Zionist depictions of war. And really from that moment onward, there is a growing number of Israeli uh, movies that tend to explore the impact of war, not as a heroic uh, way to unleash the, the, the national might, but the toll that it takes on the Israeli subjects as uh, individuals. What is the relationship, if any, between the history of Israeli film and the history of Israeli television? Yes. So as I said before, is, television really came onto the scene only in 1968. And so it was absent from Israeli culture and society for a long time. And it was a conscious decision by the political leadership in Israel 
not to introduce television because Ben-Gurion and his kind of laborized Zionist ethos viewed television as a decadent tool that would undermine the kind of pioneering spirit of Israeli youth. And so they tried to keep television away, whereas cinema was seen as something that, because it was limited in scope, because there are so few movies produced, something that could be much more controlled and could in many ways convey the national ethos. But with time and with the economic growth in Israel, uh, Israelis started buying television sets. And at the time, all you had to do was set up an antenna turn on your TV, and if there was no Israeli broadcasting service, there was Jordanian, Lebanese, Syrian, and other sources for television. And at that point, uh, the Israeli government had to start its own broadcasting um, service and introduce Israeli television. Uh, but the value of Israeli productions on television at the beginning was very poor. Uh, and they were in constant competition with the American British shows that were shown on the one Israeli channel. But what is interesting is that over time, as television became more popular and more commercial, especially with the uh, introduction of um, commercial channels and with the introduction of uh, cable and satellite in the late 80s and early 1990s, is that as part of the licensing agreement, those new stations and providers very much in the European model had to invest in local production also of films. So this also gave a boost to the Israeli uh, film industry. But moreover, really television by the 1990s created an industry where there was more and more production of more and more shows. And this really provided regular jobs for people who are part of the audiovisual cultural industry. In a country where there are 15 feature films produced a year, very few people can make a living as editors, as sound editors, as engineers who work in the industry. But with television, there could be more people who work professionally. And one of the things that we noticed starting in the 1990s is that also in Israeli cinema, the production quality seems to improve or seems to be closer to the dominant American model because people have become much more professional in the way that they uh, uh, produce uh, TV shows and, and films, yeah. What is your book's contribution to cinema studies? How does your book advance our understanding of film and of film theory? Uh, I can only hope that it will help broaden the appeal of Israeli cinema and bring more readers who are interested in film studies, film theory, to look at Israeli cinema, not only because they're interested in various aspects of Israeli politics or regional Middle Eastern politics, which is usually how people are introduced to Israeli cinema, but that the films themselves have something to offer in the broader history and the development of film and cinema, and that we can locate certain aspects that we attribute to films anywhere and apply them to the uh, Israeli case. So I'm hoping, that's my real hope, that we can integrate Israeli films and Israeli cinema into the general study of, of films and the history of films anywhere else. Not to look at it as an isolated historical phenomenon, but as part of broader uh, developments that have their unique qualities as Israeli films, but they also correspond to general cultural developments and trends in the world. Are there any common themes in the presentation of cinematic violence in Israeli film? Can you comment on the similarities and differences 
between gang violence as presented in Ashami, with depictions of the IDF's violence as presented in Lebanon. Yes. So I think that the rise of the depiction of violence transcends actually those differences and is really part of what I try to describe in the book as part of the postmodern turn in Israeli cinema is the introduction of violence as part of the viewing experience. Again, I don't think it's unique to Israeli cinema. I think that it reflects broader international uh, trends and developments in world cinema. If we look at, for example, earlier uh, depictions of, for example, war in Israeli cinema, in many cases, the violence is hinted or mentioned or talked about, or we can see the impact of the violence later on, on the wounded body or the suffering soldier. But there are less graphic depictions of the violence itself. What we see really starting in the 1990s with the emergence of certain postmodern cinematic aesthetics that kind of put violence in, in front and center. And we can think of Quentin Tarantino or Guy Ritchie or other or the Cohen brothers. As, and, and we see those trends in Israeli cinema. And in the 21st century, with the return to uh, films that deal with, um, with war and the war experience, we see this sensitivity in those films, where again, the violence is front and center, and it is something very visceral that the viewer is constantly engaged with. So Lebanon, before we, it's as if we are taken into the battlefield with the soldiers themselves, and in Ajami, we experience what it means to live in an underprivileged uh, neighborhood in Jaffa, where violence is the daily experience of the people who live there. So I think that there are actually similarities in the fact that the violence becomes realistic and a reflection of the everyday reality and experience, and not something that's hinted or talked about, but something that is really thrown in our face as, as viewers. What do you mean by the term present absentees? How does this concept help us understand the portrayal of Palestinians and Israeli Arabs in Israeli films? So present absentees is a legal term in Israel uh, that came about really to describe uh, Palestinian Arabs who remained in the territory that would become the sovereign state of Israel by 1949 and who would become citizens of the state of Israel by virtue of being in those uh, borders. But they were dislocated from their original towns and villages during the war. And because of various laws that were passed in Israel, cannot return to their original homes and uh, villages or land. So unlike Palestinian refugees who lived in refugee camps outside the borders of Israel, these were Palestinian Arabs who are citizens of Israel, who reside within Israel, but are still absent from their original homes or land, hence this uh, designation of them. And I think that it's an apt metaphor for the depiction or representation of Arabs and the evolution of the representation of Arabs on the Israeli screen. Because early on in Israeli cinema, there is a sense that the Arabs are there, but they're not really there. Either the focus is entirely on a Jewish setting and the Arabs are only mentioned or discussed, but not shown on the screen. Or when they are shown, many times those are ridiculous caricatures of Arab characters, many times by Jewish actors who are playing Arab roles, and they lack any kind of realism or authenticity. And this really dominated Israeli cinema for the early decades. 
It is only in the 1970s that we see the beginning of change whereby more authentic Arab characters are introduced into Israeli cinema where Arab actors are playing the roles of Arabs, where we hear Arabic and it's authentic spoken Arabic on the screen. So Arab characters are occupying more and more of the space and more and more of the language that we hear. And so they become more prominent, but ultimately, and we have to remember that, Israel is a Jewish state and the dominant uh, language is Hebrew and the majority of films are produced by Jews in Hebrew for a Hebrew speaking uh, audience. So in the majority of the cases with some interesting exceptions, the Arabs are still on the periphery. So the present, but in a detached, uh, dislocated way on the screen. So again, playing into this metaphor that uh, you mentioned before, or this terminology that you mentioned before. What is, what is the relationship, if any, between the history of Israeli film and the history of Israeli literature? I think that in very broad brushes, there are important uh, similarities. And, and I think that the basic distinction that we tend to apply to Israeli culture, and I think it applies both to literature and to Israeli cinema, is that up until the 1960s, the dominant feature of the new Hebrew culture that was created in Palestine, initially it was mostly a literary culture, celebrated a certain aspect of a kind of a collectivist ideology that put forward a certain idealized pioneer or Zionist subject and emphasized the notion of sacrifice of the individual on behalf of the collective. And this is very prominent in Israeli literature, in poetry, and also in Israeli cinema that I spoke about, the pre-state movies or the heroic films of the young state of Israel. What we see in the 1960s, we see the emergence of new groups of poets, later on novelists, who shift the focus away from those collectivist values with a greater emphasis on the individual experience and kind of artistic expression that is free of the, uh, of the state or the nation and is more true to one's artistic inclinations. And we can think of Nathan Zach, the poet, and his rebellion against Nathan Alterman as indicative of this turn in Israeli literary histories. It's, but, but this time, by now, it's almost become a cliche of, of depicting those transformations. And I think that in Israeli cinema, I mentioned the movie Siege before, from the late 1960s, we see a similar approach, the move away from the older collectivist ethos into a greater celebration of individualism, of the individual in the center, and the, the idea that the impact of conflict of tensions that define Israel on individuals and the daily experiences. And those changes are also the result of the profound economic changes that Israel underwent. Israel was dominated by a certain labor Zionist ideology for many years that emphasized certain collectivist economic ideals that put forward uh, big public sector companies and institutions that controlled so many of the aspects of the Israeli experience and Israeli life. And what we see, especially in the 1960s, is the rapid transition of Israel into much more of a free market and capitalist uh, economy and uh, society. And this was then fueled by the economic boom that followed the uh, Israeli victory in the 1967 war. And in this new kind of free market capitalist um, ethos, it's the individual that is more and more 
in the center. So I think here again, we can see those major transitions in Israeli literature and Israeli cinema working uh, in some ways hand in hand. Uh, so yeah, th this is, I think it was one of the examples of how the two have become a similar history or development. Can you comment on the relationship between Israeli film and religious Judaism? How have Orthodox Jews been portrayed in Israeli films? What are the different contestations of Orthodox Jewish identity in Israeli film? Sure. So he, he, we started with a conflict mm -hmm. because uh, religious Jews historically, especially those of the ultra-Orthodox community, in many ways had nothing to do with film and film culture. Uh, historically, traditionally, they did not consume films. They could not go to the movies and did not participate in the production of film. But more broadly, they were not part of modern Hebrew culture, not only of cinema. And they were seen as outsiders in the modern kind of Zionist Sabra culture that emerged in Palestine starting in the 1920s, 30s and going into the young state of Israel. So overall, there were few depictions of representation of religious characters on the Israeli screen and Israeli cinema, like Israeli culture more broadly, was more interested in depicting what was seen at the time as kind of mainstream Israeli society, which then was perceived as much more secular. And if there were depiction of religious or observant characters, they tended to be caricatures. And there are some famous examples of Kuni Lemel, which shows a Hasidic Jew comes from New York to Israel. I mean, it's a... It's, it's not an authentic representation of the religious Jewish experience. It's a caricature of a Hasidic Jew. And a similar depiction is we can encounter in uh, Officer Azulai, Efraim Kishon's very funny movie from 1970, where we see an encounter confrontation between the Israeli police and ultra-Orthodox protesters in Israel. And the way those ultra-Orthodox protesters are depicted, it's... I mean, it's a joke. It's, a, it's not a realistic or authentic attempt at representing them. But what we see, especially in the 21st century, is that there's more and more depiction of religious life, religious characters, and a growing number of uh, religious Jews who are becoming part of the film industry in Israel. And there are several explanations for that. One, the religious community in Israel is now much more substantial than it was before. It comprises a large percentage of the Israeli population. And you can no longer ignore them. They don't live in isolated pockets in Me'asharim or Bnei Brak or places that Israeli culture doesn't see. They're there. They're part of the Israeli experience. They're also much more prominent in Israeli politics, especially since 1977. They are Israel. And if Israeli cinema is about Israel, then you can't ignore this part of the Israeli experience. So we see more and more depiction of religious characters on the Israeli screen. And as I said, there are more and more uh, religious Jews or observant Jews who are making movies who are participating in the film industry. So they are also driven to engage with their communities, with their experiences. There are funds now that promote the production of films and television series that depict the um, religious community in Israel. So again, more exposure, more production. But there's something even deeper going on in that in some cases, those people who come to cinema, either from a religious background or those who are still religious Jews and practice Judaism in a kind of a traditional way, they bring a new sensitivity into the filmmaking. 
and we can identify some of those marks in the way that they tell the story of their world and their uh, traditions. So there's greater sensitivity to the details of religious life, to certain practices and the way they brought onto the screen. But there are also expectations of certain ideas of modesty, uh, of uh, Jewish values that cannot be violated when producing films. So they're shot on location, which is in a religious neighborhood, and they depict homes that look like the homes in which religious Jews live. So there's a certain aesthetic quality that also emerges in some of the films that depict the religious community, and they are somewhat different than traditional Israeli film. So in the in the book, I, I suggest that the new religious cinema also creates a new aesthetic in Israeli cinema that can be regarded as Jewish and not necessarily Israeli in this regard. What is the post-political term in Israeli cinema? Can you explain? Yes, so I touched on this a little bit before when I suggested about the happy 90s and the sense that really the, the big political issues were resolved and culture can turn away from those questions and deal with the mundane and the kind of the boring, funny aspects of the Israeli experience. But of course, this bubble burst in 2000 with the second Intifada and the realization that the conflict is still very much the defining characteristic of the modern Israeli experience and that the big issues or the big questions have not been resolved. And as I suggested, many Israeli filmmakers have returned to the big themes of war and the military and violence and their impact on Israeli society. But my, what I try to suggest is that even when they return to those themes, they are still doing it with a focus on the individual perspective, not necessarily the broader national or collective perspective. And therefore, even in films, and I mentioned in the book, for example, the Lebanon trilogy before uh, Walsh Bashir and Lebanon, films that deal with the impact of the Israeli invasion to Lebanon in 1982 and eventual withdrawal from Lebanon in 2000. So these are big kind of war-related political issues that those films engage with. But those films don't really ask any questions about the politics that led to the war, why Israeli soldiers were in Lebanon, what was at stake. No, they deal with the trauma of experience by young Israelis as a result of a situation that they were thrown into. And this becomes really the themes that those movies explore. And they don't engage with the political issues or aspects that may have been behind those events that had this profound impact on the characters, in some cases, the filmmakers themselves, who experienced uh, the, the Israeli invasion to Lebanon and then went to make movies about them. Can you comment on the depiction of Mizrahim in the history of Israeli film? To what degree are Mizrahi filmmakers emerging today? Can you comment on subsequent depictions of Mizrahi identity that challenge the stereotypes seen in a film like Salah Shabbati? Sure. So we spoke earlier about the emergence of commercial uh, cinema in Israel in the early 1960s. And really, Salah Shabbati from 1964 was the big breakthrough movie. Uh, if we examine per capita, it is the most successful Israeli film ever. It sold over a million tickets in 1964 in a very small country indeed. And it really set the pattern of the Burekas comedies that I mentioned before that pit Ashkenazi characters, European Jews, against Mizrahi Jews, Jews of Middle Eastern uh, origin, and playing on certain stereotypes. And ultimately, they do fall into a certain cultural hierarchy, whereby the Ashkenazi characters tend to be better educated uh, from a higher socioeconomic uh, strata, whereas the Mizrahi characters 
tend to be more primitive as they were depicted in many of those ethnic comedies. And really these were kind of cultural stereotypes that we used in those films. Uh, but as Israeli uh, cinema transitioned in the 1980s into the kind of the uh, films funded by the big uh, funds and and move away from uh, kind of commercial cinema into more serious, dramatic, realistic cinema. We see them move away from those stereotypical depiction of Mizrahim into more realistic uh, uh, portrayal of Mizrahi uh, characters. And for me, a, an example that uh, captures this transition is in the Boekes comedies, there are always scenes where we see two characters, Mizrahi and Ashkenazi, and they throw at each other stereotypes at one another. They, and they, they kind of express those uh, stereotypes uh, out loud. In the movie, uh, God's Neighbors, uh, which is a recent film from 2014, the main characters are all Mizrahi characters and it takes place within the world. But one character is of Moroccan origin, the other is Turkish. And there's a wonderful scene where they make fun of one another by hurling uh, kind of stereotypes of the two different communities at one another. So what we see here is a move away from the Ashkenazi Mizrahi divide into kind of an inner Mizrahi tension, social tension which is really a move away from the Ashkenazi gaze as kind of a big brother gaze that define the uh, borders of Israeliness and what fits within or without into kind of an Mizrahi community that is a natural part of the Israeli landscape. In your perspective, what does the decade ahead foretell in regard to the future of Israeli film? What new trends in Israeli society are now appearing on the screen? So I think that the prevalence of religious characters would only grow and deepen on the Israeli screen. But as I suggested earlier, I think that now television is taking the lead and it is really kind of defining the themes that we will see overall on the Israeli screen. So what we see more and more on Israeli television are Ethiopian Jews, something that has been all by absent on Israeli cinema. So this is something that we might see on the bigger screen uh, more and more of. So this would be one development. The other thing is that we see more and more Israeli television shows like Fauda, Tehran and others that are also shown on uh, streaming services worldwide that focus on kind of the Israeli special uh, forces with emphasis on the uses of new technology and kind of the Israeli high-tech industry kind of sneaks into uh, those works by the type of devices that some of those Israeli operatives and spies use. And I would suspect that we will see more and more of those, both on the small and on the bigger screen. But these are just predictions. We'll have to see if they materialize or not. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, what are you working on next as your current project can you share what you are working on now as your subsequent research? Yes, so I am co-editing with uh, two uh, colleagues, an anthology of uh, works on Israeli cinema, television, and new media in the 21st century. Uh, and we're trying to see how new forms of audiovisual representation enters uh, the frame. So this is one thing that I'm excited about. And other than that, I'm actually beginning a major research project about the history of the Israeli left, uh, which will have very little to do with Israeli cinema, I'm afraid, but with various, uh, the kind of the evolution of 
the ideology of the Israeli left going all the way back to the 1920s. So my interest in ideology and history continues. Absolutely. Wonderful. I wish you the best of luck. Martin Buber is my favorite Jewish thinker and philosopher. So I, uh, I, uh, I, can, I can see where you're coming from in uh, some of your studies, especially when you allude to the early 20s. As we uh, bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I've been humbled and honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Aaron Kaplan. He is the Goldman Professor of Israel Studies at San Francisco State University. We have been discussing his new book, Projecting the Nation, History and Ideology on the Israeli Screen, published by Rutgers University Press 2020. Thank you. Thank you so much.